Welcome back to Sober Girl Podcast. Today I have Danny from the Sober app with me. I'm so excited to finally get her on. Hi, Danny. Hi. How are you I'm today? I'm so excited to be here. I think we've been trying to plan this for like six months. <laughs> <laughs> yes. These time zone differences sometimes are I not know. ideal. <laughs> I know. And I know you take breaks and I take breaks and you know, but it, it I'm just excited that we finally get to chat and, and get some, uh, get to share some experiences and get it out there for the world. Absolutely. And like going off of that, I think people in sobriety who talk very openly can definitely know how we feel, but we do need to take those social media breaks because it's a lot sometimes. Yeah. Would you agree? It yeah. It's like a it lot is. to just constantly talk about your story and things and it'll bring stuff it up. Is. And we deal with that stuff with it, closed doors. Nobody sees yeah. that stuff. So, yeah. so we're going to jump right in. So what is cool. your sober date, Danny? Yeah. I was actually looking on an app today. I celebrate 900 days on Wednesday. Yeah. My sober date is um, June 13th, 2020. Awesome. And so oddly and ironically and strangely and all the things, Kurt's, um, my boyfriend's, his sober date is 6-13-2021. So we have like one year from each other, which is so crazy. I know. Or, that's so interesting. So yeah. we will get into Kurt. Yeah. Don't you worry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, when did you have your first drink? How old do you remember being? Oh my gosh. Okay. So I was 12. I was 12. I had a 40 ounce bottle of Miller High Life with a girlfriend of mine. We went into, we snuck out. We, we used to do this thing because I live in California and the weather is just like primarily good all year round. But during summertime, we would sleep on the trampoline. We would make like these big blanket forts and we'd sleep on the trampoline, which gave us the freedom to do whatever the hell we wanted in the middle of the night. So we would hop the fence and we would go hang out with boys. And one time they had a couple extra 40 ounces of Miller High Life. And the first time I got drunk was in a field with a bunch of boys drinking. I got, I mean, annihilated. I had never drank before and a 40 ounce bottle of beer. Yeah. And, and I vividly remember that, that night thinking that alcohol or that feeling that it gave me would become such a, um, a freedom of a way to escape, a way to feel better, a way to feel anything other than, you know, where I was at in my life. Um, and that literally was the very first day that, that, uh, catapulted me into a 27 year addiction to alcohol. Yeah. That answer 12 years old is a very popular answer. I yeah. get it's whenever I hear that, it's just like, it resonates with me a little bit just because everybody that's everyone's answer is just yeah. such at such a young crazy? age, such a young age. Do you remember what that felt like? I know that was a long time ago. Do you remember? Oh, totally. It was like, like euphoric, you know, it was very euphoric. It was like anything you were worried about went out the window and it gave me confidence that I didn't normally have. And it gave me a way to um, be social in a way that I wasn't comfortable being social, you know, even as a young girl, I mean, at this point now I'm obviously going through puberty and I was into boys and I just didn't know how to do that, how to be me comfortably. And I mean, 
from the time I was until I can remember, you know, when I was a little girl, three, four years old until I was 12, I had been so subjected to drugs and alcohol that it seemed totally normal. So not only was it like a form of like freedom, it was super exciting. I remember feeling like, this is it. This is everything that I need. And even, even then, you know, I remember waking up the next morning feeling, feeling terrible, but not caring because it was, it was worth it, you know? So, um, more than anything, it just gave me a way to, um, just to, uh, to, to be excited over feeling different. Yeah. Yeah. Now you mentioned being subjected to drugs and alcohol before. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Oh gosh. Yeah. So, um, my parents got married, they had me and, uh, not too long after me, they had my little brother. So, um, by the time I was three, um, I had a, a little brother who, uh, was misdiagnosed ear infection turned into spinal meningitis that turned into pneumonia. Ultimately he ended up going into a coma and then he had severe brain damage from the spinal meningitis and he went into, uh, onto life support after that. And then my parents decided not too long into that to take him off life support and he passed away. So he was eight months old. Yeah. When, when, when he died and, um, what that did to my parents was not only kick their addiction into high gear, but it ultimately resulted in a divorce. So my mom immediately went into a new relationship and my dad moved. And, um, the new relationship that my mom got into was with a very abusive man who was a meth user and an alcoholic. And so we moved in with him immediately. And within a month, I mean, my first experience at his abuse was being waterboarded. Um, he loved to smother with pillows. He loved to strangle. And this is just part of who he was. And at any given point, whether it was, I didn't put the fork in the right drawer or I burnt the eggs or, and I mean, I'm six years old, five, six years old, you know, now at this point. And there were so many reasons, you know, as a little girl to make mistakes that I would be severely punished for by abuse and torture. And so not only was I abused and tortured heavily as a child, but I was so exposed to their, to, to his drug use. Um, one of the first things I remember ever seeing, despite the sound of like the scraping noise of razors on a mirror, because that was a very common thing for me to hear. Um, was him sitting at a table. We lived in this tiny travel trailer behind my grandfather from the time I was six years old till I was 12. Like I never had my own bedroom. I never had my own privacy, neither did they. We were in this very tight, confined space. Um, I couldn't afford anything because of their addictions. And so when I would come in and out to change or I had to come in to eat or whatever it may have been, um, a lot of times he'd be sitting at this little table. And I remember, walking in and he had a blowtorch with this glass pipe that he was twirling in the flame of the glass of the um, of the torch and told me that it was art and that he was making art when he was blowing a crack pipe and so that was like what my life consisted of I was so close to them there there was no privacy that their drug addiction was so deeply embedded into me without even being a part of it I 
you know, there's so much of it. I remember just the smells, the sounds, hearing them fight and argue how he would abuse my mom and, you know, what he would do to me. And, um, you know, they would make their meth in the trailer that was right next to us, full-blown meth lab. Like, I mean, it was all happening, you know, and that was my life. So when you're subjected to something like that, so close to it and the abuse and all the other things that I went through, essentially it's inevitable, you know? So for me, it was almost normal. And if it wasn't normal, um, it was exciting. You know, it was like, I was a product of my, of my environment. Yeah. Ultimately. Oh, I'm sorry yeah. to deal with all that. That is, that creates one hell of a trauma. That's for I sure. mean, it does, but you know, it also creates opportunity. And so that's my perspective shift with it today is that I used to, I used to say that I was better, you know, I don't have to do drugs. I don't, um, I don't have to continue those patterns. Right. And I used to tell myself this, I will never be that person. I'll never hurt a child. I will never put a crack pipe in my mouth, but I became a heavy alcoholic. And then eventually my drug, my alcohol use led me straight to opioids and I mean, essentially I was doing heroin. I was no better, right. um, but that type of trauma for the longest time fueled my fire, right? To try to be different. And as, as hard as I tried, I failed, but those failures, I see them now as an opportunity to, to know that it, you know, obviously it wasn't my fault. It was circumstantial. Mm -hmm. um, I became a product of my environment and to know that now I have a story to share with other people that I survived and that I went through something that that traumatic and how I dealt with it. And I get to come out on the other end today and say, Hey, like if you've been through this, a, you're not alone. And if you haven't, um, listen to what I have to say type of thing, you know? So it's the trauma is real for sure. I mean, we're talking like, deeply embedded traumas that going through EMDR and life therapy mm -hmm. or uh, life coaching and trauma coaching and so many things I've done that have surfaced, you know, subconsciously all these memories that I, I just didn't even realize I had not only that I had, but that were affecting my behavior so much. Um, but I'm aware of that now. And so the cool part about getting out and talking about it and and, and sharing these experiences is every single time I do this, something surfaces, there's more awareness and there's more opportunity for me to go, oh, you know what? This can be a lifelong journey. I still have so much work to do and that's okay because I get to talk about it as I go and help people along with, with helping myself as I go. So, you know, the, the, that perception shift of why did this happen to me has gone from that to why is it happening for me? And it's really kind of a cool journey. That sounds awesome that you have taken like such a bad experience in your life and yeah. transferred it into something good and a way for you to help people. Yeah. A lot of people don't do that. A lot of people just, you know, keep things inside and don't realize that by sharing these things, it releases it outside of you. It's no longer in you. You're releasing that into the universe. And that's such a powerful thing to do. Now, yeah. as far as you getting older and then going through your own addiction, how much of that kind of looked like 
your childhood? Like, did any of that, did you see any similarities in that or were you kind of just on your own path with it? I mean, it's, it's kind of hard because my childhood, you know, there was, there's, there were so many hard drugs involved in such a, a poor way of living. You know, we were, we didn't have money, you know, I didn't have a home, but what I did see is that I fought so hard not to become everything in my mind. I had told myself, okay, I can't live in a trailer. I can't be poor. I can't be a drug user. I can't. And so that ruled so much of, of my life that I got lost in what I can't be. Then I never allowed myself to be what I was truly meant to be. You know, I was just in constant fight mode. And so I ended up in failed marriages. I ended up a single mom with two jobs and school full time. I ended up struggling my ass off. And because I struggled so much to maintain this life that I thought I was supposed to have, and it was difficult and it was, there was a lot of fear involved and a lot of struggle that I used all of those excuses as a means of why I drank. And so, and I think that's all we really ever do. On top of all that, I didn't treat any of my trauma because I just didn't think that I needed to. I thought I was some kind of badass that I, you know, had my shit together, that I didn't need to dr or use drugs and that I wasn't living in a trailer. And so all of these like factors, I thought, I thought I had it together, but I didn't, it was just a progressive, slow train wreck, you know? And, um, so some of the patterns were just that slow progression. It's not a matter of if it's when. Um, it was inconsistencies in my entire adulthood. It was not being present. It was lies after lies and the guilt and the shame and how that spirals into your, an even deeper addiction of your own. Um, you know, essentially there was no difference. How did you navigate like motherhood, being a single mother and also having the addiction at the same time? Like, how did that go together? <sighs> Well, let's see. I missed a lot of events. Um, and you know, it was always the kids needed to be in bed at a certain time because it was time. That was my time. Um, I would coordinate with my, with their dad to take them every other weekend so that I had my weekend. And I would, I mean, we're talking three day benders, just party all night long. And I would spend the rest of the week when I got my kids back recuperating. So now I'm a tired mom full of anxiety stressed out about work, unhappy, unhappy at work, unhappy with myself, you know, and I did so many, I made so many poor choices during that time that when I did have my kids, it was so hard for me to be there and be a present, you know, mom who, who felt the joy of motherhood because I was so lost in every other circumstance in my life that they were clueless about. Um, and there were plenty of times that I drank around them, you know, it was like, it was a normal thing for them to know that mom's drinking wine. And so it just, it, it resulted in a lot of missed events, a lot of lies when I couldn't get there. Um, yeah, it just, a lot of guilt, a lot of shame. Your kids just know. Yeah, that's absolutely something you have to navigate through once becoming sober too. Like a lot of people, yeah. I'm a big person with emotional recovery. I think it's absolutely 100% necessary. And I think that it is hard, but people should do it. I think it releases a lot and helps people really 
be able to handle situations in a different way. And I think that like, you really are a product of that. I really believe that. So from what I've seen, explain to people what EMDR is. EMDR is a very popular thing that a lot of people in recovery are doing. So I just want you to like shortly just explain what that was like for you. So you, it's, it's, in my opinion, the best way to deal with trauma. Essentially what I experienced was sitting with my therapist and we would, she had a, um, it was like a pendulum swing and she would start it and we would always target like a memory and we would talk the memory through eyes closed. She would, she would navigate navigate it with me. We would talk about the memory. We would talk about the emotions, everything that's involved, what you're seeing, what you're feeling, what you're smelling, um, how you're feeling. And then we would come out of that and talk about the situation. And, um, and she would offer tools and, and some sort of guidance on how to understand it, um, for what it was. And, um, you know, so for example, there was one, one time I shared with her, I, my mom and I were driving with my mom's boyfriend. He used to have this big red Ford truck. It was old and it was a piece of crop. And we were driving on this like cliffside Hill along a lake, not too far from my house. And they'd both been partying and I was sitting in the middle. It was like a, like a bench seat, single cap truck. And, um, they got into a fight. And next thing I know, um, my mom's boyfriend, my abuser was, I'm sitting in the middle, he's here, my mom's here. And he's just, I mean, he's just punching her right across from me. Right. So he's like hitting me as he's punching her and she's trying to fight back and grabbing the wheel and we're swerving all over the place. Right. And I mean, we're on a, we're on a cliff, but it could, we could have just gone off. There was no, there was nothing stopping it. Right. We're swerving everywhere. And and I go back to that moment all the time because of the impact of how it felt when he was hitting me, trying to get to her and her trying to fight back and them just fighting over me and me being in the middle of this. And I, we went through that and it was interesting because as I was in that, she stopped me and she asked me some questions and my dad's been gone for almost a decade. And so I used to spend every other year with my dad. That was their divorce arrangement for um, custody. And so that was one year that I was with my mom and I remember praying in the seat, just thinking I wanted to be with my dad so bad. And, um, and so, so she stopped me there and I was able to actually be in that memory and, um, it's kind of hard to talk about, but, um, kind of connect with my dad, like on a spiritual level. I can't talk about my dad girl. I get the same way. Yeah. Yeah. We have, that's one thing Danny and I have in common. So she lost her dad a decade ago and I lost my dad last year. So it's sometimes even far into the future, it, it affects you in just a different way. And it's really difficult to talk about. And it's just, that's how it is sometimes. And sometimes we can talk about it and sometimes we can't. And yeah, so it's hard. It's, it's difficult, but that's, yeah. that's her feeling everything too. I want everyone to know that like, that's her feeling her emotions and not going to escape them. And that's right. her just breathing through it. Like, and that's, that's what sobriety can give you. 
that and these really amazing oils I have over here. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah, I know, right? Uh, All right, let's change the topic to give Danny oh, a second. Okay. <laughs> you know, like we were able to, that type of therapy was able yeah. to give me a, um, a spiritual connection with my dad. And so because I was able to make that connection with my dad in that moment, as I was going through that traumatic memory, I was able to, as I get back into that memory, I, now I have my dad with me. So my dad is with me. So now it's not a matter of me being alone and me being stuck and me being, you know, a victim of something. It's my dad is with me, was with me. And just knowing that I had his spirit with me in that memory that I have in me, it gave me something to kind of hang on to, to make that situation as I remember it totally different. I walked away that day from that session and I sat in my car and ugly cried for like an hour. It was just so heavy, but it was also so much of an opportunity for me to go, oh my God, I don't have to be alone in those memories, yeah. right? So that's that's an example of what it can do for you. It's yeah. worth it. Mm-hmm. It is so worth it. Somebody wanted me to do it and my therapist said, absolutely not. You're not oh. ready. When you're ready, we'll know. Oh yeah. It's, but my therapist was like, absolutely not from our conversations. There's no way she goes, I will write a letter to them. I will call them. I will email them, whatever you need me to do. She was just like, we're not at that part yet. We can't do that. Intense. Yet. Yeah. So, so in that I had like, that was somebody in my corner for that time. So that I didn't have to go through something while I was going through all these other things. Right. So it's something yeah. that a lot of people I know have just a lot of success with. Yeah. I mean, I, and I do agree. I think you have to be ready for it. I think that you know, if you're, if you're triggered emotionally to a degree that you feel like it's going to be so heavy, you could potentially relapse or you potentially hurt yourself or go out, or it's going to affect your behavior in such a way that you could potentially spiral things like that. Then of course not. But I think at that point I'd had a year and a half of sobriety under my belt and I'd done the AA program and completed the steps and stuff. And I had a really, really amazing support system around me. And it was a matter of, let's see if this is something that you're ready for. And if you're not, then we stop. Yeah. And so I think I went through maybe four or five sessions, like, yeah. And, um, unfortunately just with costs and stuff, I had to stop, but there was so much I took away from it. So anybody who's, who's listening, that's interested in it, I highly recommend it. It's such an amazing form of therapy. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. My next question was something you kind of just answered. So what outlets did you find when you did decide to enter sobriety and now like AA you had mentioned? Oh my gosh. Different things. Yeah. My journey has changed and it's evolved and it's, you know, the, the spectrum has widened. Um, originally I went through my first 90 days white knuckling it. I really had the stigma in my head that AA was like, for the homeless person that drank out of a brown bag, you know, and I really just didn't know. And so I remember after 90 days falling completely on my ass, just like I had no clue who I was. Like I, I knew that I wanted to stay sober. I just didn't know how. And, and then amidst of all of that, I didn't know who I was, you know, it was like, I drank for 27 years. I started at 12. I didn't stop till I was 38. And so I truly didn't know who I was and how to handle life and how to be social. I didn't know how to do anything. And so at 90 days, I went, Oh my God, pink cloud's gone. I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. And so I reached out, I created the sober socially account on Instagram and I started watching other social account or um, sobriety accounts in the background. I just, 
I watched, I started, I searched hashtags and I had a bunch of like quit lit. Like I had a, a bunch of like a library of great books. And so then I started like asking questions. And then from there, somebody had recommended I go to a meeting. And so I thought, well, what do I have to lose at this point? Because I was just so, I was so lost. Um, and so I, I sent out an SOS on my Instagram. Somebody recommended a meeting, walked in terrified, sat through the meeting, ended up getting picked up by this amazing girl who's a, like a best friend to me today. And um, she sponsored me through the program. I found a very tight knit group of women, um, which worked best for me. I know that AA isn't for everybody. Um, and there was a lot of elements about the program that I love. And there was some that I didn't. So I took what worked for me. Um, and I made it my program and I had a, an amazing sponsor who was sort of operated the same way. So she introduced me to all sorts of new tools, whether it was new apps or it was new literature or it was, um, you know, different events or just tools. Like I, I created this amazing toolbox. And, um, so I went through the program. And then I decided after I create, you know, completed the 12 steps, I needed a little bit more or different. Like I just needed different. And um, so AA will always be the foundation of my sobriety. I will always give that credit where credit is due because without those women who are still very much a part, a part of my support system today and without what I learned, you know, the principles and the promises and things like that, I don't know that I would be who I am in my sobriety today. So AA program always gets that, you know, shout out. Um, and that also really led me to creating a really amazing relationship with my higher power. And so creating that faith and walking in, you know, that's having a spiritual foundation, knowing that you're not alone in your program, knowing that when you struggle, it's okay. Knowing all of those things and having that faith was nothing I had before. So, um, creating, you know, a relationship with, you know, the God of my understanding. And, um, despite that, I started getting involved with events. I just started plugging in wherever I could be of service. I went to sobriety events. I volunteered anywhere I could. Um, I really just started going to different meetings, speaker meetings, listening to people talk, getting involved in their story, asking how I can help which then eventually led me to meeting Kurt. And um, that's how we got involved with creating our own sobriety app and developing the sobriety app. So, um, you know, I, to date between having a coach who, who coaches me through life and sobriety, um, and I still attend meetings, I do podcasts left and right, whether I'm interviewing or being the interviewee. Um, I'm plugged in with the app, you know, we're constantly just uh, plugged in. And, you know, our roommate, Mikey, he's, he's so, um, he travels all over speaking about fentanyl awareness. And so we're constantly assisting with events like that. And so for me, I kind of pull at all these different areas. It's not just one, one thing. And, and I don't know that it'll ever be like that for me because I, I'm an addict of wanting more. I want more. And, and I still struggle in that area. And I just, I want to create what works for me, um, with the guidance of, of, you know, my higher power. So I pray about it. 
And I do what feels right. And if it doesn't feel right, then I don't keep doing it. If I feel drawn to something more than something else, then that's what I stick with. But um, the most important thing is to always have a strong support system because, you know, the opposite of addiction is connection and we have to stay connected. That that to me is number one, like stay connected. All right. So now that we've touched on Kerr a little bit, let's get into how you met and really how you navigate your relationship. Okay. So first and foremost, I will say that being in recovery with um, someone you love that you're navigating life with is so rewarding in so many ways. So I don't care what people say. I don't care what stigmas are out there. I don't, I don't care if you have a sponsor telling you, you should wait six months, a year, whatever you listen to your heart. Um, and if you have a problem, a, a, a program that is working for you and you happen to meet somebody along the way and they have that same type of sobriety of, of, of emotional sobriety, and they have those qualities that you're looking for somebody, you know, you can grow with. Um, there was a lot of factors that I had to consider when Kurt and I met, but essentially, um, we met through Instagram from my sober account. So he was looking for somebody to, um, collaborate with and, and help create the sober app. And he had put his hand out and said, Hey, I'm looking for collaborators. I responded and basically said, this is an incredible idea. Take all my money. I quit my job. I actually had two jobs at the time. And we dove in headfirst. And I mean, we spent every breathing moment from the beginning of this year until we finally met to launch the app. So, and I'm talking from morning until sometimes the next morning, just talking to people, connecting everything we could get, any kind of information, resources, stories, everything we can get to put into this app, we got. And, um, and throughout the duration of that process, we got super close. And when we met, we connected and that was that it, the rest is history. You know, it was inevitable just knowing that there was such a strong connection from the get-go sort of fighting it because of the circumstances I was in. Um, and also just being scared, you know, there was a lot of fear. Um, and you know, when, you know, you know, and we met and that it just, that was it. It was like, two lives that just organically merged. And from there we hit the ground running still, and we haven't lost traction at all. The beautiful part with Kurt and I is that he was an addict for years. I was an addict for years. So he gets it on a level that somebody who might not have been an addict wouldn't understand. There is a type of support and understanding and encouragement and love and patience and all the things that you need while you're navigating this journey that you might not otherwise get. I'm not saying it's not possible, but what I'm saying is, is that he and I have such a mutual understanding for what it was like then. And we also have this amazing way to um, really celebrate victories and growth as we continue to navigate now that you know, I heard this the other day and it pissed me off. 
um, some guy was talking about a sobriety and someone chimed in and said, why do addicts make such a big deal about getting sober when all they did was destroy their life and then they want to get praised for it afterwards? And oh, girl, I lit up. Now, here's the thing. I don't know that if I was in a relationship with the normie, that they would be able to support, understand, encourage, and relate to me on the same level that another addict would. So I don't know that we would be able to celebrate together the same way. Um, and I don't know that they might not see things that same way, you know, just, uh, you created your own mess. So clean it up and quit celebrating it. But here's the thing. Addicts understand that even though it was our own mess, we created, it takes an act of God for us to get into a position where we can be who we're meant to be and not get back into those dark places. And I'm not just talking, going and picking up. I'm talking about the depression, the anxiety, the behaviors, all of the shitty habits that you created throughout your addiction that still reside mm -hmm. that um, another person in recovery can celebrate with you when you have those victories. So, you know, it's like this constant daily, wow, good job, babe. I'm so proud of you. It's a constant thing like that with Kurt and I. And when you've done so crappy for so long and you just want to see the best for each other and you're doing that collectively, oh my gosh, it's some days I feel unstoppable and other days I thank God for Kurt because the things that I go through that I still struggle with, he's, he's, he lets me without judgment, without like, oh my God, this girl's a mess. It's wow, babe, how can I help you? And then when I'm good, it's wow, I'm so proud of you. So we just have something that I, I don't know that I could have with anybody else. And I'm not interested in finding out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can absolutely relate to that just because I dated somebody who was normal. Um, and then I obviously dated my husband and they were collectively a very different experience. Oh, me. I'm sure. My yeah. husband is in recovery for those who don't know. So it's, it's a, Hey, you're off. What's going on? How can yeah. I help? Can I help? Instead of being like, what's with the attitude or why are you acting this way? You need to stop. Right. You know what I mean? Right. There's not that part yeah. like disappears. And that's a part where a lot of people can be triggered and just react. So emotionally totally. to something like that. So yeah. it's nice to be able to have somebody who understands that right? And who can notice before maybe you notice yeah. something's going totally. on. Like, yeah. like it's just, it makes a world of difference. Yeah. So now the sober app was launched and then now you guys are like reconstructing it now. So what should, when should we look for that coming? So excited. So we are in our first phase of redevelopment right now. And what we're creating isn't like anything that's out there. So it's going to take some time. Um, our expected launch relaunch date, actually, it would be an official launch. Um, probably be late May, late May, early June. Um, we've just gotten through our first phase of, um, of development. So essentially the shell has been created. There's a lot of like so many details, so many moving parts. It's a lot of work, but we're, we're transitioning over into, um, the, the bread and butter and getting all of it into the app and, um, getting back in contact with collaborators and, and not just collaborators, but, uh, 
other folks who will be providing resources within the app. And so we're just in that in that transition right now of getting all of this information together. And um, yeah, so late May, early June, fingers crossed. Perfect. Sounds great. Yeah. Now, my yeah. last question for you is if somebody's listening to this and they're really struggling to stay sober, what would your advice be to them? This is, I, I mean, this is such a, this is such a loaded question and it's so hard to answer. Um, reach out to someone you love that loves you. Seriously. I, I, I remember asking this question to somebody one time and, you know, a lot of the times we get the response of just know you're not alone and, and you're not. Um, and that's why it's so important to keep that connection of people, but sometimes people suffer alone. They don't, they don't want anybody else to know that they're struggling. They don't, they don't even want to talk about what they're going through with anybody else. And I totally get it, but putting yourself in that vulnerable position and doing it completely scared gives you an opportunity to, to, to grow through that situation and, if you're struggling, reach out to just one person you love and talk about it. Tell them why you're struggling. Tell them what's going on. I mean, reach out to me. I don't know you, but I love yeah. every app. I mean, reach out to somebody you know that is going to love you without conditions and can help guide you that can be by your side so that you don't have to navigate what you're going through alone because there is nothing worse than going through those hard moments alone, truly. Yeah, I love that. Now, Danny, tell everybody where they can find you and the Sober app on every social platform. So the Sober app can be www.thesoberapp.com. There's a big reconstruction um, uh, symbol that comes up. And of course we have an Instagram, it's the sober.app. I'm on Instagram as sober underscore socially. Um, and both me... And the app, because I do a lot of the admin within the app, um, Instagram are available. So, you know, if there's anything ever that's needed or just somebody to say, hey, you know, I'm struggling, I can say, hey, I do too. Yeah, I love that, Danny. You're such a good person. I'm so glad that we met. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And Thank please, you for having me. Please go follow her. She is amazing.